0: We're going to pick up where we left off, which means we'll be starting tonight in um, the Book of Genesis. Specifically, specifically, we're going to be in Chapter Nine. Instead of recapping where we've been, um, I'd actually just like to, to jump right in and start because um, that will frame the recap, which we actually need to do tonight. So we're going to pick up in verse 18 of chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan these three were the sons of Noah and from these were uh, these people the whole earth let me try that again and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent okay now I wanted to get that last piece in there before we look back because there's a Reverberation, there's an echo here, and there's an important thing um, that we see in this passage. As we talked about last week, as the flood begins to go away, as it um, recedes, uh, the author of Genesis intentionally paints a picture of something we've already heard. And so when the flood begins to recede, when you look back, When you look back at chapter 7, it says, um, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And so here we have this picture of a God-driven wind and an earth covered in water, and it's the same picture we find in the very beginning. In verse 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis, it says, that the earth was without form and void and God was, uh, the spirit of God specifically, or the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so here we have kind of earth mark two. And uh, the author is pointing in this direction that what we have is a new and fresh world. And so when God gives a covenant to Noah, the covenant repeats the same one that he made with Adam and Eve. Go, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth. Just as we saw, um, there was a relationship between... between Adam and Eve and what they were allowed to eat, we see that repeated and built upon now, not just every seed of every tree, um, but also every animal. And so all of this is built out. And here we get kind of the final piece of the puzzle because as we roll through the creation story in Genesis 1, it brings us to Genesis 2 where God creates a garden and sets the man in it to till the garden. And here we see the same thing. Brand new world, um, empty of all life, Great expectations and promises given by God and Noah, like his forefather Adam, plants a garden. In particular here, the garden is a vineyard and uh, here it says that he plants the vineyard and notice the phrase that it uses in verse 20. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, a man of the earth. Now this is clearly just a phrase for farming. But when he uses the words he uses here, he's drawing our attention to the beginning of the man who came from the earth, of the man who was tilling the earth from which he had come, even the curse. You remember, cursed be the ground, and you will return to the earth, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. Um, and so that's, that's kind of hidden right behind the language here. He's a man of the dirt, just like Adam was, and to the dirt he will return And it's almost a surprise that the very first story we get of Noah, remember Noah who was more righteous than all in his generation, Noah who God looked on and found favor, Noah who has faithfully and obediently done nothing so far in the story independently of God, right? Every action he's taken at this point has been summarized with the words, and God did as Noah, or sorry, and Noah did as God commanded him. Over and over again, this pattern's repeated. And so it's a surprise to find that his very first action is to plant a garden, specifically a vineyard, to make wine, to drink of it, and become drunk. And, I mean, listen to the way it's phrased in verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Okay, so he's passed out naked. Now, before we get to what happens next, we have to just ask what happened here. We have to look at this, and it seems clear that a pattern has now been developed in the book of Genesis intentionally. And so we see Adam and Eve's choice in chapter 3 as they choose disobediently to eat of the tree, to rebel against God, and we watch the consequences laid out. And then we have the new generation. We have Cain and Abel, and we see Cain once again make a choice, this time to kill his brother. Uh, And as the story moves along, not only in the development of Cain's line, In this city that Cain's descendants build, do we have Lamech who stands up and decrees vengeance and has also killed a man just like his great-great-granddad Cain? But also by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, it says now every intentions of the thoughts of men's hearts was always evil continuously. And so it paints a world uh, as being one where the problem that begins with Adam has found no solution to that point, that things have merely gotten worse. In fact, even after the flood, as God receives the sacrifice that Noah makes and promises never again to flood the earth, the language that he does it in, uh, I'll recall for you, he says uh, at the beginning of uh, or at the end of chapter 8, Verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so what he says here is not that anything has changed, okay? And so the judgment in the flood is not cleaning the earth in the sense that sin is dealt with, in the sense that this big problem presented in Genesis 3 is set aside. Yes, God utilizes Noah, He sees him as righteous and faithful. Yes, he's obedient. uh, But here, we're in a garden again. We get a chance to, this time we get to start not just with an innocent man, but with a righteous man, and we still find sin in the garden. Why? Because sin got on the boat with Noah, right? Because the problem of mankind is not an environmental problem. Uh, It's not merely a them problem. It's an us problem. It's an all problem. Um, like Solzhenion says, the line of good and evil runs through every human heart. And so we find that here in Noah. And, uh, and this pattern, as I mentioned, is, is not just circumstantial. The author is trying to make a point here that just as God said in Genesis chapter 3, he was going to do something about this problem. And so we see that the problem still exists. Now, in the same way that after the story of Adam follows the story of Cain, here we see not just Adam drunk and passed out in his tent, but here comes his son, Ham. Now, just a mention on these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You discover when you read the story closely that it's actually um, Shem who is the oldest, and then Japheth, and then comes Ham. The reason the names are put in a different order is probably just phonetic. It's just nicer to say Shem, Ham, and Japheth than Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Or even Ham, Japheth, and Shem. Um, But when when you read the story closely, although we always find that order in the beginning, even when we get to the genealogy, it's going to be rearranged. And uh, just a few verses from now, we'll find out that Ham is actually the youngest. So this is his third son, Ham. And so this is what it says in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, the older brothers, took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered their nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son, there we go, had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Okay, now there's quite a good pile of questions at this point that we need to go back and address. Um, the, the first one is just to try and paint the picture of exactly what happens. And so if you read the, uh, the text very simply, it just says that Ham saw that his father was naked, that he told his brothers, and that his brothers took a cloak and walked backwards into the tent not even seeing their father in any sense and draped it over him. And then we see that Noah awakes, somehow knows what has happened, and here we get the very first words of Noah. I don't think anything speaks stronger to the pattern I've mentioned than the fact that the first words of the new Adam are cursed be Canaan. Okay. Here we see the curse recurring here. Here we see the behavior recurring. Remember that Ham is Noah's son, a product of his own loins. This is, um, this is the situation that's presented here. But when we put all those pieces together, we still have a great many questions. Um, I'll just list a couple of them to get us going. First off, whatever has happened here, how does Noah know what's gone on? Right? He, he attributes this to Ham whatever it is, and he knows it as soon as he awakes, okay? As far as we can tell, from sleeping to waking, the only thing that's changed is he's now covered in a blanket or a robe or a cloak or something like that. The second thing is, uh, this is such a big deal that the author is going to go on and say, this is, this is what leads to the Canaanites, and this is what leads to consequences on the Canaanites. Uh, and, and yet, when we read the text, it seems relatively minor. Right, he saw his dad naked. He told his brothers about it. I think we'd all agree that that's probably irreverent, but it doesn't seem actually that surprising. I, I think we can all imagine brothers nudging themselves about. Hey, did you see that dad's passed out in the trailer? It just, it's just—it's not that weird of a thing. And so, for something so small to lead to something so big is really confusing. And then we have the hardest part of all, which is why in the world does the curse fall on Canaan, who? This is why we were told earlier, notice verse 18, Ham was the father of Canaan. So why does he curse his grandson and not his son? Now, I'll I'll be clear and upfront, when you read through the rest of scripture, the Bible is very clear that justice is a one-to-one scenario between your behavior and God's consequences. It does recognize the fact that our sin impacts other people around us, which I think is relatively self-evident. That's why we have a concept like victim. Right, you can be a victim of somebody else's behavior. There's also the sense where, um, where there's clearly patterns in sinful behavior, like we've seen with Adam and Cain. But when we move forward, Abraham uh, is going to lie about his wife being his sister, and then a generation later, we're going to see the same pattern play out in his son Isaac's life. And this is a little bit of an inference for me, but you don't get. The feeling that Abraham ever told Isaac that that happened. You don't get the feeling like that's the type of thing that they talk about around the fire, you know, like that's the joke, you know, hey, you remember, you remember, or do you know what your father did to me one time? You know, we all have those stories, but he lied and I got put in the Pharaoh's harem. It it just doesn't sound like the story you tell your kids. But nonetheless, the pattern repeats. And you'll see this continuously, um, but once again, the Bible says specifically that God doesn't punish the children for the sins of the father. And so we look at this, and it's a little bit confusing. Let's deal with the question first of what has happened here. Now, this has been a confusing thing going all the way back to Jewish interpreters. They didn't know how to take the simplicity of this story, that, you know, it's a semi-voyeuristic and a little bit gossipy, and it led to this result. So the early rabbis actually taught that, that Ham castrated his father. And there is an intriguing reason to point to that, because Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. Noah has three sons. He's never going to have a fourth son. And so that's how they got around this connection. But there is really no way to get from saw the nakedness of the father to castration. However... When it uses this phrase, saw the nakedness, you will find this in the Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as in the book of uh, Exodus to talk about a sexual act. Specifically, it says this, if anyone uncovers the nakedness of his father, okay, now we're on a little bit of familiar territory, but every time it's used in that way, the nakedness of your father is not your father at all, it's his wife, it's your mother, Okay? And so the incestual relationship that's considered there is, is a wife, but Noah's wife is missing from this story. And if Noah's wife was the problem, it wouldn't explain why Japheth and Shem cover up their dad, and that's the contrast to the story, right? Now, you could also notice here that it says uh, that he saw the nakedness of his father, and the word here for saw is stronger. It doesn't mean that he saw as in he walked by and it entered his vision. It means that he looked intently. It it means that he paid attention. Like I said, the connotation here is voyeuristic. Um, And sometimes this phrase is used of a very sexual looking. For example, later in the Bible, David is going to be up on his roof and he's going to see a woman bathing. And it's clearly the same, it's the same word, and it's clearly the same type of story. It's not just that he noticed and looked away he sets up a lawn chair and sticks around for a while. That's what the word implies, okay? Um, but, But that doesn't really explain the connotation. We don't find anything that can't be explained away in sexuality. So what I think is helpful here to consider is the recognition of both the culture of the ancient world and the Bible for the respect of your parents, okay? Just recognize this, that when God finally does give the 10 words, what we sometimes call the 10 commandments, the first half of those all refer to your relationship with God. And so you are to worship God, you are to make no idols, you're to honor the Sabbath. They're all God-oriented. The second half is all people-oriented, but the very first one on the list, the first one he wants to address, is honor your father and mother, That's first on the list. In fact, when the Jews divide up the Ten Commandments into two tables, because you may remember that Moses comes down the mountain with two tablets of stone, and so they just naturally thought one stone had half the commands and one stone had the other. They actually put the break after honor your father and mother. They include that in the first tablet of responsibilities and not the second. The reasoning of modern Jews goes like this, that your first exposure to the reality of trust and obedience, that your first connection with God inherently is through your parents. And so it's much closer than how you treat your neighbor, because your neighbor doesn't reflect or, can, or carry the authority endowed that your parents do from God. And so when you look at that, that seems to make more sense of the story, even though culturally it seems tremendously distant. Um, respect for parents is not only rare in our times, it's not really held up as being an important virtue. Of course, the two probably go hand in hand. But nonetheless, the, the story as it appears in Scripture, when you just read it simply, if you were to just take Occam's razor, which I've mentioned to you before, which is the least assumptions leads to better answers. The less hypothesis required, the less um, things you have to assume, the more trustworthy the answer. If you apply Occam's razor here and if you read it as if you were just reading it for the first time, what happens is an issue of tremendous disrespect. Okay, And it's not only that Ham looks upon his father and takes some sort of enjoyment in it. Remember that Noah is the patriarch and that his uh, I mean let's be honest, ham owes his life to noah's behavior that 's true, but on top of that he's been calling the shots he's orchestrated this whole thing, and he is he is the only authority on earth at this moment, right if there's a president of planet Earth at this moment it 's Noah okay but ham not only looks and finds some enjoyment in his father's failures but he also divulges it to the brothers and I don't know about you but when you read this phrase when it says he told his two brothers outside that is not a fact-based statement right what he comes here is not emotion free and tone empty it's just like hey man I don't know what's wrong with him but but dad's passed out in the tent that's not what this is he's like oh my gosh you guys you have to see dad right that's the tone here of this concept and we see in direct contrast to that, the behavior of Shem and Japheth who aren't even willing to, in the midst of this, even though their intentions are right, to look upon their father in his shame. Now, let me add one more elef- uh, elephant, one more element that draws this out. Remember what nakedness has meant in the story so far, right? Nakedness and shame go hand in hand. Uh, nakedness with shame is a direct byproduct of the sin where everything went wrong, and so there are probably other stories that the author of Genesis could have highlighted to make some of these same points. But this one has um, has similarities. It's the setting. It's it's all it's carrying the theme that he's already seen. Imagine you're writing a biography. Okay, when you write a biography, you don't tell the whole story. Why? There's two reasons. One is because the whole story is is boring. You don't want to tell tell everybody what some famous person had for breakfast, lunch and dinner, and what his dental appointments were like and these types of things. And so you tell the essential things that give you a picture into the real person and not just the circumstantial things. But there's another thing you do in a biography. You select the ones that make the point you're trying to make, right? Because when we write a biography, we're not just wanting to know about a person, we're wanting, or to show about a person, we're wanting to make a point, okay? And so if the primary lens you see the character through that you're writing a biography about is in this range, you're going to pay attention to, highlight, and tell those stories, okay? Now, when we look at the result of it, we still have to ask the question, okay, if this is Ham's behavior, why cursed be Canaan? And for that, we actually have to read a little bit further. Notice what it says here in verse 25. He says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, so two things we notice here. One is he doesn't just address or even specifically Canaan, he also addresses Hirshem and Japheth. Now, if you go on and you read in Genesis, the blessing being passed on to the next generation is a major thing, right? The fight between Jacob and his brother Esau has to do with the blessings. And when Jacob steals the blessing, it's such a big deal that it's even unrevocable, right? If you're not familiar with the story, Jacob pretends to be his brother for his blind father. He wears his brother's clothes, so he smells like his brother. He puts goat skin on his rather unhairy arms, so he's mistaken for his brother. He owns up when his father says, who is it? And he says, it's me, your oldest. And he takes the blessing, and even when Jacob finds out, he can't reverse it. Later on, when Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph, Joseph brings two of his sons, one older and one younger, and he brings them forward to his father to pray for and to bless, and his father switches his hands and puts his right hand on the younger son. And Joseph tries to correct him, and, and Jacob basically says, this is the way it's going to be. And so there's this sense of the blessings here that is, that is bigger than just this. And also, I want you to recognize here that it's not just Canaan that's about the future. Okay. So the things that he says here are not about what's going to happen over dinner tonight. right? He doesn't say that he's going to ground Ham, and he's definitely not grounding Canaan. But he's looking forward into the future, and so notice again what he says about Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, when he says, may God enlarge Japheth, where, what has he done there? He's moved on from Japheth the person to Japheth the lineage, Right? This isn't just that Japheth will be well-fed. It's that his territory, specifically, that's what he's planning on enlarging, that the ground that Japheth is covering in his descendants grows. In fact, he's making a play on words because Japheth means to grow. And so he says, let Japheth Japheth. Okay? So, here's my best understanding of what's going on here. Whether it's out of anger or not, whether it's rooted in a curse that is uh, calling for a curse upon his son or recognizing a reality, right? He just says, this is a cursed line. There is a direct correlation between the behavior of Ham and what comes out of Ham's loins, of what comes through his lineage, what comes through his descendants. And it's not that God twists a people because of the behavior of Ham. It's more likely Ham is kind of a messed up guy, and it shows up in his kids. If there is something sexual in here, then we have a direct correlation in the modern world that we understand, which is that sexual abuse generationally leads to sexual abuse. And that's, that's how the Bible can talk simultaneously about the fact that you are only responsible for your own sins and recognize that your sins have consequences not just on the people around you, but the people who will be born from the people that you gave birth to. Your grandchildren and so on and so the recognition here is in a sense prophetic he's looking forward and he's seeing what's coming and that's why the author wants to record this particular story now you might go but come on isn't this just nationalism at its worst where you create a religion that prophesies the evil of your enemies and then justifies in a few chapters the stealing of their land and I'd say, yes, exactly. That's an exact way to read it. But I would, I would encourage you to stick around. I would encourage you to do your own study and look at the culture of the Canaanites that we've unearthed, okay? I don't like this analogy. I won't use it again, but I'd rather use it here than when we get to Canaan. This is an old yeller story, okay? This is a culture that's gone rabid. This is a culture that has become self-consuming. It's a culture that has started to offer its children to the god Molech by laying their infant children on a molten hot idol. Uh, this This is a culture that kind of deteriorates into its fullness. And on top of that, recognize that the things that God talks about here don't happen in five years, in ten years, in a hundred years. Even when God brings Abraham into the land, that's a land for his descendants. Even when he brings Israel to the boundary and they refuse to enter in, there's a sense where they stay out of the land an extra 40 years because of their behavior. But the book of Numbers tells us it's also because the wickedness of the, of the inhabitants of the land is not yet full. Okay? And so what you see when you pay attention is patience, okay? You see the same thing in the story of Jonah. Don't mistake the character of Jonah for the character of God. Jonah goes to the Ninevites. He goes to the capital city of the Assyrians, Israel's traditional enemies, and by the way, the ones that have by his um, contemporary, the prophet Joel, been prophesied to take out Israel, Okay? We know that Jonah's read Joel because he quotes it in his book, okay? So he knows that if Assyria is saved from destruction, Israel's still at risk. He knows if if judgment falls upon the enemies, then his nation is relatively safe. So there's a lot more going on in Jonah than just racism. But But when you look at the story, what you find is that God is ready and willing and on the fence of forgiveness and restoration, if only they will repent. It's a similar thing with the Canaanites. In fact, one of Canaan's descendants is Moab. And we know Moabites who were involved in the promises of God like Ruth right? Even though it's going to get so bad that there's going to be a line in the sand in the law that says no Moabite will worship in the temple and yet Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of David and directly in the lineage that leads to the Messiah. When you get into the prophets, they begin to speak of a time that is coming where God is not only going to bring Israel back to him, but Assyria all the way to Egypt will all be the land of God, okay? And so don't get caught up in this piece of the story because it's only half the story. But nonetheless, Noah looks down the pike prophetically and he sees what's coming. And the first thing he sees is that Canaan will eventually be a servant of servants to his brothers. And so when when we get to the wars of Joshua, this is where this starts to transition. And when we get to the rule of David and Solomon, this is where this prophecy really comes into fulfillment. And I'll just remind you currently here that even though the author of Genesis is not alive in the life of Noah, but, but recording these things, editing them, preparing them for the Pentateuch, right? So if it's Moses for the people as they enter into the land, even if you push the book of Genesis back further from that, which I don't think you can make a very good case for. In fact, let me tell you why. The book of Exodus knows its geography. It knows its history It knows uh, the way things would be in the world of Exodus, okay? It is not just biographical, it's autobiographical, and it's relatively clear, okay? So that causes us to date the entirety of the Pentateuch, which is a running story. Remember, they're connected with the word and. Exodus opens with and. Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus all open with and. Even Joshua opens with the word and. So there's a running story going on here. Um, but the second thing is, even if you come all the way up to the end of that history and say that it's written then, these promises in David and in Solomon are still future tense. Okay? And so the perspective here is looking beyond the pages of Genesis. In fact, notice what he says about Shem here, verse 26. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, Shem is the line from which Abraham comes, but there's quite a few generations in between there. It is worth mentioning here that Shem's name is where we get the phrase Semitic, okay? If we refer to somebody as being anti-Semitic, it's coming from the name Shem, okay? We'll see a few more of these words along the way, but I wanted to mention that. But what does he say here? He says, not blessed be Shem, but blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He repeats the curse here, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now there's a question here that doesn't seem like a question unless you know what this says in the Hebrew. The question is, who dwell in the tents of Shem? When you read it in the English, it sounds most likely that may God enlarge Japheth and let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. And so commentators have even pointed to this fact and said, maybe there's going to be a sense where the descendants of Japheth come into the religion of Israel in a way that's not true of Canaan. Okay. Now, it's also possible here that when it says, may God enlarge Japheth, it means may God enlarge Japheth and let God dwell in the tents of Shem. Okay. I think that's the more likely reading. And I'm going to tell you a reason why that has nothing to do with interpretation. It has to do with something slightly removed from that. There are those who have looked at the chapter that comes next, the table of nations, and recognize the fact that for the most part, Japheth's descendants go north of Israel and west. Okay, so remember Israel is right next to the Mediterranean. Japheth goes across the Mediterranean Sea, up over the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. that's where they settle. Um, the Shemites, including Israel, uh, they all settled generally in the land just north of Israel and around Israel, but in that general area. The Hamites, which includes the Canaanites, settle not only in the land, but especially to the south. And so, for example, in the line of Ham, we find Cush, Which is ancient Ethiopia, okay, just south of Egypt, that area. And as you look on the line of Canaan, you'll find many different African people groups. And so there were those who went, "Aha! So here is the servants. Here are the slaves. The line of Canaan. These are the black-skinned race. And the see the Bible says right here they're cursed and they're going to be a servants of everybody else. Um, That obviously is too far because it's the Canaanites, not the Hamites that are cursed, okay? So geographically, as we get into chapter 10, that's not going to make any sense. It's a convenient truth, and usually a convenient truth just means a really convenient lie, okay? But second, um, second, there's a slight version of that, okay? It's not full-blown racism as in black people deserve to be slaves. It's a version that says the Western world God foresaw as being his vessel, And by Western world, we always mean America and maybe England, okay? And so we see ourselves in Japheth and we go, see, Christianity would grow into the Western world. And so what started in Israel moved into Rome and through Rome spread into the West. That actually was a pretty solid interpretation until about 20 years ago, okay? And the reason I say that is because there are now more Christians alive in the Southern Hemisphere, than in the Northern Hemisphere, let alone the Western world, which is really just the Northwestern piece of the Northern Hemisphere, okay? There are more Christians today in Africa and in um, South America than there are in England, all of Europe, the United States, Canada, okay? And so if you're going to say God gives a great blessing to the Western world and they dwell in the tents of Shem, there's a sense where that was temporarily true, but it's now, it's now the Hamites who are, quote-unquote, dwelling in the temps, tents of Shem, okay? So we're still left with the question, then, what exactly are these things talking about here? And when it says here that, um, that blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, do you hear the repetition there? We saw the same repetition with Canaan. Canaan will be a servant of servants, and then when he gets to Shem, and Canaan will be your servant, Shem. Okay, And so there's this redundancy. The emphasis is here. There's a blessing for Japheth. And when you look at Japheth just in the table of nations that comes in the next chapter, they spread out farther than anyone else. Okay. They, cra- they cross seas and get maybe even as far as Spain, depending on where Tarshish is. Okay? So they really travel. They really do enlarge. They grow. They expand. Um, but, but what's ultimately being pointed to here is that God is going to do something unique in the line of Shem. Okay. And this will start to come to bear in Abraham. And So we're going to put it on hold, but that's the emphasis of what's going on here, is that God has a unique and a spe- special plan for Shem. Okay. Verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the day of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, that's a great conclusion to the story, but we need to recognize structurally why it's there. If you go back a few chapters before the flood, you find a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 that walks all the way from Adam to Noah. And the pattern is a repeated one. It's, and this man was born, and at this age he had a son, and he lived a certain more amount of time, and then he died. And the pattern's repeated over and over again, only with the exception of Enoch. But it's repeated, and then at Noah, it stops. And it stops midstream. We know that Noah has sons. We know when Noah has sons. And then the chapter comes to an end, and we open in chapter 6. Okay? Here is the close of that genealogy. Okay? There's a parenthetical. The reason why I point this out to you is, we'll see it again when we get to chapter 11, Genesis is effectively a genealogy with commentary. And so it brings the commentary up and then stops, tells the story and then picks the commentary or the genealogy up and keeps rolling. And that's what's happening here at the end of chapter five. It's closing of this. Now, chapter 10, verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So once again, we hit this documentary uh, document boundary. That's a better way to say that. We find a new generation of statement, a toldot. This is, um, I believe, the fourth one we've seen so far. And it's these sections that make up the totality of Genesis. And so after the generations of Noah, we'll find the generations of Terah. And after the generations of Terah, we'll find Abraham, and then Esau, and then Isaac, and it will keep rolling along as it moves along. Um, we've seen the same thing already. So we started with the generations of the heavens and earth in chapter 2, and then we had the generations of Adam. And these make up these um, sources or original documents or sections of the story that stand alone, but the author of Genesis has pieced together and provided the seams to tell the bigger story of what's going on. So we cross another threshold here, and we move successfully from the end of Noah's life into the story of his sons, and more accurately, the story of his sons' descendants. Because I'll remind you that the generations of talks about what comes out of, and not the story. And so, for example, the generations of the heaven and the earth isn't the story of creation, it's the story of Adam and Eve. So... So notice the summary statement here. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Okay. In preaching, in communication even, but definitely in preaching, we sometimes talk about what's called a stitching statement. Okay. Imagine that you're preaching a sermon with three points or that you've written an essay with three points. You have very clear guidelines or very clear distinguishing sections between one paragraph and the next, between one point and the next. But you want there to be flow, okay? What a stitching statement does is it reaches back into what you just said and ties it to what you're about to say, just like if you were stitching through two, through two pieces of fabric, you'd go through and pull the two together, okay? That's effectively what he does here, do you see that? I'm about to talk about a genealogy. I just talked about the flood. Okay, it's a transition. It gives us the connection. And so now he moves on to the sons born to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But notice the order. He starts with the sons of Japheth. And then he does the sons of Ham. And he finishes on the sons of Shem. Okay, why? We've already seen, um, we've already seen that, uh, that Ham is the youngest, and yet we find him in the middle. But instead of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, here we find Japheth, Ham, and Shem. The reason's a very simple one. It's because the real story lies with Shem, okay? And so he's going to close the chapters on these two other lines in the same way that he did with Cain all the way back in chapter 4. Remember, after Cain kills Abel, we get the lineage that comes from Cain, and then it jumps back to Seth and continues on. We'll see the same thing when we get to um, when we get to Isaac and Ishmael. So it will stop and tell you all about Ishmael's descendants. Then it will back up to the generation of Ishmael and tell Isaac's story instead. Okay. So once again, it's a genealogy with commentary. So he's going to close out and end the ones that don't have the red thread, the ones that aren't leading from the promise given to Eve for the you know the the child who would be born. Through the promise given to Abraham, that through you, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the way through the kingship of David and then finally to the Messiah. And so here he starts with Japheth. And the reason he starts with Japheth and not Ham is because these characters, the names we're going to mention here, they're pretty far removed from the rest of the story of scripture. They occur and some of them occur just to talk about really far away things. Like Tarshish is a descendant of Japheth, it's generally just used to say really far away, okay? And so here, first, we have the sons of Japheth in 24. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. Now, we could talk about where these generally are. Sometimes they're names of historical people. Sometimes they're names of cultural groups. Sometimes they're the names of cities, And quite a few of them recur later, like you may have noticed here the name Magog. And when you get to the prophets, Gog and Magog is this prophetic important thing. And when you get to the book of Revelation, it refers again to the battle of Gog and Magog. And so the geography of the Bible starts here. But we'll deal with those things when we deal with those things. Tonight, I actually want to show you the places where the author of this genealogy throws on the e-brake zooms in, and talks about something important. For the most part, though, he's just laying these things out. Verse four, the sons of Javan are Elshah, Tarshish, Kidim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with its own language, by their clans, in their nations. And so what we see is full development of people groups, and in those people groups, Uh, ethnicities and languages and nationalities, okay? In other words, part of the purpose of this genealogy in chapter 10 is to explain the origin of the rest of history, of internationalism, of there being multiple nations. Up to this point, we've basically had humanity as a single family, okay? And here it starts to diversify and spread. We've had at least, uh, we'll see in just a second, a single language. But here there's a diversity of language, um, And then, like I said, for the most part, these things start to lay out the reality of the ancient world and therefore the context of the rest of scriptures. But for the Japheth, uh, Japheth descendants, it just says that they were coastland uh, and that they spread over the oceans. And then we get to the sons of Ham, verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Okay, like I said, Cush is just south of Egypt. Uh, Ethiopia and Nubia, things like that, Uh, Egypt you recognize, um, Canaan is the Canaanites, we're going to come back to them in just a second. Then it tells us a little bit more about the sons of Cush, verse 7, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, and Sabteca, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush, so now we get Cush, but it doesn't say these are Cush's sons, it it focuses in, notice this, Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of the king, his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, reboth Ear, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Okay, so when we get to the next verse, it's going to be just like the verses prior to this. It's just, this son went on to. This son had these descendants, but it pauses here and tells us all about a particular descendant of Cush, a man named Nimrod, and not just the life that he lived or the descendants he had, but the kingdom he raised, his reputation, the cities that he built. Why? The author is preparing us for what's about to come. Okay, anytime he slows down in the genealogy and gives us more information, it's because he's going to unpack this in just a minute. So what do we learn here about Nimrod? Um, the first thing is said here is that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Okay. For the other uh, occasions of where this phrase is used of him being a mighty man, there's Genesis 6, where it talks about the Nephilim, who there were mighty men upon the earth, same phrase. Um, there's later on when it refers to kind of warrior kings of other nations. And so most likely that's what it's talking about here. Why does it mention the Lord at all? It's just an emphasis of notoriety, okay? And we've already seen this. Noah was before the Lord. He walked before the Lord. And so there's just this recognition of reputation in this guy Nimrod, and it refers to him as a mighty hunter. Now put this back in the context. Go back just a few generations and you have family, and suddenly you have a warlord, okay? This is a transition from people spreading out in their own thing, doing their own thing, next to their family, to a conqueror. That's the transition that's happening here, okay? And then specifically, not only is he just... The first conqueror or a conqueror, but he's the one that founds the city of Babel. And it's just listed here in the list. Notice what it says in verse 10 the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Okay, we're gonna come back to that in just a second. And then it mentions Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. That's another thing that's going to come up in just a minute. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Okay, that's another important thing, but not so much in the book of Genesis. See what you have to understand is as Israel's history moves forward, and as they begin to fail God and not keep their side of the covenant, and after years of God sending prophets to warn them to get back to the covenant, He threatens that two things are going to happen. For Judah, the center of the northern kingdom, uh, sorry, of the southern kingdom, uh, they are going to be taken out by Babylon. Okay, which begins with Babel. Okay, when it, which begins with the land of Shinar. And then there's Assyria, and the ten tribes are taken away by the people of Assyria. As I mentioned, uh, jo- Jonah goes to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. Okay? And so what you're seeing is not just the beginning of local hosti- hostility with Israel, but the beginning of the Bible's typology okay, that flows all the way through this symbolism that begins, as we'll see, with Babel and Babylon. Babylon and flows through the rest of the Bible. And so it takes the time here to tell us this story and to root it right here, and then it continues on as if nothing ever happened. So we see in um, verse uh, 13, Egypt fathered Ludim, Anim, Lebahim, Nephatim, Parstrum, Kalashim, from who the Philistines came, just an aside, and Caperitum. Then it moves on to Canaan, and remember that Canaan is the one that was uh, that was cursed. And so, what does it say here? Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Gergesites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Averdites and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed. Now, most of those names may be familiar to you because those are the people occupying the land that Abraham settles into. That is promised to his descendants that eventually under Moses and specifically under Joshua they come in and conquer. Okay? And so the Canaanites are a specific group of the sons of Ham that take up this land that we know as the promised land. That's why, notice what he does in verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebuim as far as Lasha. And so this is the first time this land that we haven't heard about, that hasn't been promised to anybody, that has no significance whatsoever, is traced in its outline, which it's done multiple times in scripture. But here in the genealogy, he takes the time to say, these people were dwelling in this land. What land? I'll tell you later. Then he continues in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nation. So we get a summary close just like we did with Japheth. And then we get the line of Shem, verse 21. To Shem also the father of all children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. There we go. Now we have the actual order of their birth. Okay? We have Shem, then Japheth, then Ham. And it's just these little asides that put that together for us, but we find out that Shem is the older brother, and then notice it says that he's the father of all the children of Eber. Now, Shem's son is Eber, and Eber, we'll see in the line, leads to Abraham, but it's worth mentioning here that Eber is where we get the word Hebrew, Okay. And so once again, we've got another name that comes in that refers not to the whole people, but just specifically to the Jews, but it comes from their ancestor, Eber, okay? And so they become the Hebrews. Now you may be asking then, if we know that they're the Semitics, right, the Semites, if we know that they come from Shem, if we know that they come from Eber, and both of these names are in use, why do we call them the Jews? And the reason we call them the Jews is because one of the tribes of Israel is Judah, and when the ten tribes, the northern tribes, are removed from, uh, removed from Israel, removed from their land, Judah stays with Benjamin uh, and a couple of other hold-ons, but it's the, the kingdom of Judah. That's what it's called. When they return to the land, for the most part, Israel returns to Judah and takes on that identity. And so all of the people, by the time we get to the New Testament, refer to them as the Jews, the ones of Judah. Okay? So that's where these names come come from. And so we see here, um, verse 22, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arshbashad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Now just an aside, Uz is the area um, where Job lives in the book of Job, which is why many people believe that Job as a document might be older than anything else in the scriptures, because it's from the days of Abraham. And that makes a good deal of sense about the story of, uh, of Job because Job is not a Jew. He's pre-Jewish. His, his religion that he worships is not inherently Jewish. He's not under the law. All of these things come after him. And so he stands out as this unique character. But here we find him in the line of us, okay? It continues on here. Gether, and Mash, 24. Arshbashad fathered uh, Shelalah. And Shelah fathered Eber, there's the Eber that was referenced earlier, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So once again, we get a little expansion. What does it say? That it was during the days of Peleg, the earth was divided, okay? Now, as an aside, Peleg means divide. And so this verse, once again, is a play on his name. But we don't know what's being talked about here. So some have gone, maybe this is just a local division between Peleg and Joktan, and they just, they divided the land. They split up and went separate ways. But based on the pattern that we've already seen, that he gives us these asides for what he's about to tell us, here, the division that's talking about is the story of the Tower of Babel. Okay? And so here, in the line of Shem, we get a time marker. It was in this time that there was this division, which we're just about to talk about. Verse 26 Joktan fathered Almadad, Selep, I'm not even going to try that one, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dilka, Obal, Amiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. And these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans, the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, that's the, fir- the last place where the word flood occurs in the book of Genesis. Why is it there? It's there because what we have in verse 1 and verse 32 of chapter 10 is called an inclusio. Okay. I want you to think in your head of a parenthesis. And so you have an opening parenthesis and a closing parenthesis. An inclusio is a structural way to do the same thing. You say it once, you tell your story, you close it with the same thing you said. And so if you go back and you look at verse 1, these are the generations of the son of, sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then you jump to the end of the story in verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations and from these nations spread upon on the earth after the flood he closes where he began, okay? Now that actually serves a purpose of real value in other places in the Bible, but I just wanted to observe it here. It's a structural way of tying a nice little bow around the story, okay? So he closes that story, and what does he do next? He doesn't tell a story that's at the end of these genealogies, but he goes back and tells one that's in the beginning, that's in the middle, that's in some other place, When this author does finish a genealogy and start the story there, this is super weird. Nobody knows why he does it, but it's consistent. He gives a man, and that man has three sons. Okay? And so when he says that Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, pause, tell the story that involves those generation, which is the flood. In the same way, he's going to get to Terah, and Terah's going to have three sons, pause, and then we're going to tell the story of Abraham. It's almost as if the genealogy is like a pole, on a tripod. And so he always sets that up if he's going to just chronologically keep going. When he doesn't, there's allusions to what he's about to talk about, and we've already seen them. We know Nimrod starts Babel, and we know that the world was divided in the days of Peleg. But he goes back and tells the story because there's something he said over and over again that we don't understand if we're reading for the first time. And that's that the, there's been this dispersion that's spread everywhere. Okay? And in that has been a bunch of languages. Okay, And so when we read the story of the Tower of Babel, it explains those things. And so that's what we get in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Just an aside, because we're on the point. Over and over again in the book of Genesis and in the rest of the Jewish scriptures, you see a storytelling pattern that we just don't do, which is that you... Um, that you double back and tell from the beginning. So we see it all the way in the beginning. The heavens and the earth are created, that includes uh, man and woman, and then it goes back and it says, now let's talk about day six, and it zooms in and tells the story over again. In the same way here, we've already seen a diversity of languages, and it goes back and it says, now in those days, in what days? Before all of this, there was one language, okay? And so what does he say? The whole earth had one language and the same words, Literally the same lip. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Okay? This is where all of the verbal reminders of that time when he's talking about Nimrod should start to be clipping up for us. The move here to the east lines up with what happens with Nimrod. The reference to the land of Shinar happens. It's all trying to draw our attention to these things. And what has here, verse 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the first thing they do is they bake a bunch of bricks and they gather materials. And then they build two things, a city, Babel, and a tower, okay, which we call the Tower of Babel. Then not only do they build two things, but they do it for three Reasons. Okay. Let us build a tower to the heavens. Why? To make a name for ourselves and so that we won't be dispersed. Okay. So their goal in this is to not go, but to stay. Their goal in this, like Cain, is to build and to stay put and be secure. And then their goal is also fame and notoriety. Okay. Now imagine, imagine in the ancient world the first skyscraper. Most likely what we're reading about here is a ziggurat, and they became relatively common. And this doesn't even have to be the story of the first one. But even a ziggurat, the word means um, uh, lift your head towards the heavens. And the idea is it's the only thing around that makes you look up, right? Because it's just unlike any other man-made structure of its time. And so the idea here is that they're going to make themselves, them and not all the other peoples of the earth, the ones who have the tower, right? It's about notoriety. Both of these themes of let us make a name for ourselves and lest we be dispersed upon the earth explain what's about to happen, okay? But here's another thing you have to get. You may have noticed that the way the story is told is just kind of slow. Let me read it again. I'll show you what I mean. So they settle in the land of Shinar, verse 3, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Once again, the author is using, uh, using a chiastic structure. You may remember we saw in the flood that the author tells the story in such a way that it builds at the exact same pace that the water recedes. And so there's a point in the story, a centerpiece. And what was that centerpiece? And God remembered Noah, right? It's, it's like a sideways pyramid, and that's the very point of the triangle. In the same way here, the same thing is happening. And so they use the language, come, let us do this. And then God's about to use it as well. And so we see the machinations of men leading to a point building this tower and then we see God's destruction of it filling out the other side, okay? So with that being said, let's, let's move forward and then we'll talk about what's going on here. And the Lord, uh, verse five, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, first off, notice, notice the tone of this sentence, they say, let us build a tower up to the heavens. And what does it say that God does here? That he had to come down and see it, okay? He's, he's squatting down because it's so far away from him, he has to take it. Look, there's a personification. You know, there's human imagery being used here to show the contrast in view. And so these men look at this tower as the greatest thing ever built, right? A proof of their intelligence and their genius and their power And God says, Let me see what you're doing there, you know, and he leans all the way down so he can get a clear view. This contrast between the way we see things and the way God sees things maintains throughout the Bible. Okay? So, for example, when Samuel is off looking for a replacement king because Saul has lost the job, he's sent to the house of a man whose name is, help me out. David's father's name is Jesse. Jesse, thank you. And Jesse has a bunch of sons. And the first one walks out, the oldest, and Samuel thinks to himself, that guy is kingly material. And God speaks quietly to him and he says, don't pay attention to the way things look, for I don't see the outside, but I see the heart. Okay? And this theme goes, out, uh, goes throughout the whole thing, and so you'll see constantly in the scriptures, as men ridicule the works of God as being little things and then they end up being really big things. In contrast to that, you will always see that when men stand against God in their accomplishments, that they're effectively mocked. So he came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they will propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, therefore, and confuse their language. So we see here two divine speeches, just like we saw two communication of the men. The first, let us make bricks. The second, let us build a tower, and he says, let us take a look, and then let us come down. Okay, and notice also here that this is, not, this is not God defending his reputation jealously. Right, notice carefully what it says. He says, behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, in our modern time, that might sound like freedom, but what it actually is, is danger, okay? This is, this is envisioning the atom bomb, if you will. It's the recognition that not everything man can accomplish is inherently good or valuable or an advancement for humanity. And what he recognizes here is that because they're unified together, that they're bonding together to do whatever they can do, and because they all speak the same language, we're going to accelerate effectively our own demise, And I'll just remind you here that in the story, we already have an example of that. It's known as Genesis 6, right? The world became a place that was filled with violence. It's going that way again, and it's going that way quickly. And so what God is doing here is preventative mercy, okay? He's dividing the people and confusing their languages for their sake, not merely for his own reputation, Okay, now, the fact that they want to make a name for himself is a big deal, but we're going to find God has no problem making a name for human beings, because when he comes to Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you a name, okay, and we'll come back to that in just a second, but the the point here is that he sees that this is the beginning, but he's also capable of seeing the end, and he mercifully interferes, okay? So, verse 7, come, let us go down, that they... And there and confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building that city therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth now a couple of things Babel which becomes Babylon means the gate of God Okay. And so the way that the Babylonians saw this and the word that they coined meant the place where we meet with God, right? Even their idea of building this to the heavens is not just height, which is why we build tall buildings now, right? To be the tallest. And so now we've got the Burj Khalifa uh, and somebody is probably already in the works of trying to beat that just to be a little bit taller. That's not what this is. Their, their idea is to invade heaven, Right? And instead, instead, what we see happening here, what God does, um, he takes the Hebrew word here, Babel, and draws on a, a different idea. And to the Hebrews, the word Babel means confusion, okay? And it's not, um, it's not here that the author doesn't understand the meaning of the Babylonian word. It's that he chooses a play of play on words that's relatively close to make a point. Okay. You see this later in the prophets a lot where they'll just slightly change the name of a nearby nation and therefore completely change the meaning. God even does it with Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter one. He says, you're supposed to be Jerusalem, the city of peace. He says, but you are a city of blood. And he just changes a little letter there to make his point. Okay. But, but here's, here's the thing. They are trying to stay together and God disperses them. They're trying to make a name, and they're given a name, but it's, it's a foolish name. It's Babel. And they leave this half-built tower in the dust, you know, and go their way. Here's their reputation as those who didn't finish the job, okay? And so it's a complete reversal of their intentions. George MacDonald very helpfully says that man, apart from God, fails miserably, or must succeed more miserably. And that's something I relate to in my life, personally. But it's also the thing that's going on here. The recognition is that if they build the tower, like I said, it's only the beginning. Um, And so God mercifully, preventatively interferes. But I also wanna make another illustration here because effectively this is a conversation about technology. And I don't just mean computers, I mean things that we use as human beings to do stuff. So that includes language. But there's this tendency to think that more technology leads to better living, that it leads to more safety, that it leads to ushering in a utopia, okay? Now, that idea is starting to fall away. We're a lot more pessimistic about technology than we've ever been. Just watch Black Mirror, okay? We've gotten to this place now where we recognize the flaw there, but this demonstrates something I think is really interesting. What do we have before this happens? A single language... No national boundaries, total unity in cause. There's a humanitarian, you know, effectively a one-world government type thing going on here. Uh, and, uh, And they use it for evil. They use it to make their stand against the commands of God that were handed down to be fruitful, multiply, and spread out over the face of the earth. And they use it instead of honoring God to honor themselves. But we have to recognize what comes next, don't we? What happens with the confusion of the languages, the dispersing, and the forming of nations? Racism. War between nations, right? Um, Misunderstandings that come with communication. Fear of the other. In fact, that's part of the story, right? They're confused. They can't even work together because they don't trust one another now because of these changes in language, right? It just puts too much behind the curtain, too much hidden, this is just an assumption, and I don't think it's a possible one to prove, but I am still pretty, uh, pretty convinced that if you take any century in human history and you look at the technological advancement, I think it's going to be relatively easy in big general numbers to balance the scales between lives saved and lives destroyed. And so with all the medical advancements, we also have the atom bomb. And with every penicillin, we also have the machine gun right? And a lot of times it's the self-same developments that lead to those same things because the reality is technology is merely a tool. And a scalpel in the hand of the doctor and a scalpel in the hand of a madman, it does very different things. But nonetheless here, what we recognize here is a shattering of the connections between human beings. It began with the fratricide of Cain and Abel, right? Where the family breaks down. And here, the broader humanity breaks down and begins to fragment and segment, uh, and uh, that's why the law has to say, take care of the stranger, because there is such a thing as a stranger now, and it all begins here, okay? Um, Now, um, let's just read the last verse there, and then we'll continue. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So he uses this to spread them out and this is how we actually get to the final lines of the genealogy we just read, right? With their languages and their culture being across the world. It happens because God interferes. And so let me just say one last thing. We've already read enough in Genesis to recognize that God is involved in human history. The idea of a God who is distant or not involved in world politics or things is not the God of the Bible. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says that God lays the boundaries for the nations. In the book of Amos, he speaks to the people of Israel and he says, is it only you that I led into your land? Did I not lead the Amorites and the Philistines as well? And probably the clearest explanation of this is given in in Mars Hill by Paul in the book of Acts, where he says that the, the um, actually, we're going to read that one because I don't want to blow it. This is in Acts 17. This is what he says. In verse 26, speaking to this crowd at the Areopagus, He says, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Okay. So allotments both in timeline as well as in place. Okay. That is the God that Paul presents to the Athenians because it's the God of the Bible. And so that doesn't mean that it's very easy to choose God's side and go, he's for these people and against these people. And it's definitely dangerous to just assume that he's on our side. Because even when Joshua comes into the land and sees the angel of the Lord and says, are you for us or against us? The guy just says, no. It doesn't work that way. The better question is, are you on my side, right? But nonetheless, here we see a God who cares about what's going on on earth, who sees injustice, who does things about it, who has determined these boundaries and is involved in human history. Now we get to another genealogy. Isn't that great? too? in the same night. Another genealogy that finishes off chapter 11, but I want you to notice why it's here and how it's different than the one we read in 10. These are the generations of Shem. Didn't we already do this? No, we didn't. We had the table of nations, but remember the style of the gene- uh, genealogy in chapter 5 is a father and a son and a period of life and then one at a time. And so now it gets back to the story. Okay, now it gets back to the genealogy. It goes back to Shem. And here, what it's going to do is it's going to go just as far as the table of nations did with Peleg, but then it's going to continue on. And so it says here, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Notice again that the author seems to care about the historical dating. So he tells us here when Shem was born so we can connect it with the genealogy of chapter 5. Okay. I, I'm not saying that so that you can read it back and determine how long the earth's been here. I'm just saying the author clearly cares about keeping the timeline straight. He continues on in verse 12. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Selah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Selah for 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Selah lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber. 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And so it continues on here, and we have Peleg, and then we have Ru, and then we have Sirig, and then we have Nahor, and after Nahor in verse 24, become, or we find Terah. Now here's another thing that's worth referencing. Remember that the only difference between this genealogy and the one in chapter 5 is one is leading up to the flood, one is after. When you look at the lifetimes lived by the people in this list, you will find that the longest life lived in this genealogy is shorter than the shortest life lived before the flood. You will also notice, if you do the math, that generally the age, uh, the old age, the age of death declines over time. And by the time we get to, um, Tara, um, Ne- or sorry, when we look at uh, Nahor, he lived 29 years. He fathered Terah, and he lived after he fathered Terah 119 years. That gets us right into the ballpark of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, and so the question becomes twofold. One is why such a big difference between the two? Why this sudden decrease in life expectancy? And then why this constant decline that follows the pattern the whole way through? And frankly, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's relatively clear, um, for one, that this begins with the fall, that what we're seeing is death reigning, right? As Paul puts it, so through one man, death entered, and through that one man, death reigned. And we see that becoming more and more prevalent and shortening lifespans as it moves along. The leap we see in the flood probably has something to do with the promise that God makes before the flood when he says, from now on, 120 years, that's, that's the lifespan, okay? Like I said, that may be, he may be saying in 120 years, the flood, but he also could be saying life is going to decrease down to this level, which is where it sits for the rest of the Bible. There are the creation scientists who like to point to this and just say, if the flood was as traumatic and drastic on our climate as it looks, then the exposure that would come with UV rays and all these things would have this direct effect Um, But that may just be a a means to the same end, right? God often works in natural ways, and so that's possible. But nonetheless, that's the pattern. And so in verse 26, we get to Terah. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. There's that tripod again, right? Three sons, and they do become important players in what happens next. So he labels them all. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Okay, now we know why we know Abraham's brothers, because Lot's going to come into the story later. 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took their wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Okay couple of things here. We learn a little bit about Abram's family. We see his father. We see where they come from and we see they're on the move. And so Tara uproots his family and moves them along a little way. The second thing I want you to see here uh, is that the the genealogy that we've been following comes to a dead stop in Sarai. Okay. I'll, I'll just spoil the plot. Abram's going to be the next one in the chain, but he's married a woman who is barren. Okay. That becomes important. And remember, Remember that we're talking about a world here where, where a woman couldn't just go start a company, right? And so your namesake as a woman was in the child you bear and it's the same for the father. Remember that for the Jewish mind, it's all about the promises. God said he's going to do stuff and so if you're not bearing children, those promises are not for you because you don't have any descendants who will be there to receive them. And so barrenness in the ancient world was a huge deal. For this reason and it just drops, drops that bomb, just sets it here. Now Sarai was barren. The next thing I want you to notice is the type of person Abram is. His family, most of their names come from the worship that we know happened in Ur of Chaldees of the moon god, okay, and they're named after him. In fact, you may have noticed the name Milka appears here. That shows up as being one of these ancient gods later, okay. Even Sarai's name, princess, is speaking of the consort of the moon god, the reason why I bring this up is because just like Noah, we assume is this God follower who God uses in a tremendous way. We take the same assumption with Abraham, that he's in the lineage and therefore one of the one true faithful and he gets this grand opportunity to be used by God. That's not the story. Joshua tells us that Abram came from the land of his fathers where he worshipped idols. Okay, He just says it. And here we see the same thing implied by the names, the context that he comes of. When we're going to read what God says to him in chapter 12, verse 1, that comes out of the blue. It comes with him not knowing God. It comes with him thinking that all of life is built in a completely different way. He is a pagan who God reveals himself to, okay? And that's an important thing to keep in mind because Abraham's story inherently then becomes one of grace, where God just sovereignly chooses Abraham. Abraham. Now, we're going to close at the end of this chapter, but just a few more verses, 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law the son of Abraham's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. And so what we see is them moving actually towards the promised land with Terah, and then Terah dies, and while Terah's in his old age, Abram stays put. Stephen actually says something really interesting. He says that it was out of Mesopotamia that God called him, and he traveled traveled with Terah, waited for him to die, and then went into the promised land. But technically, that's what the book of Genesis says as well. Because in 12 verse 1, what it literally says is, now the Lord had said to Abram. So once again, it tells the story, and then it backs up and tells us why. So we saw the nations dispersing, and then it says, here's why they dispersed. And we see Abraham traveling in the wrong direction compared to the rest of the Semites that we saw in the thing, and now we find out why, okay? Now, I would love to do the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 because that makes a major transition in the book, but instead, we're going to stop there, and I just want to make this observation. What happens in Genesis chapter 12 is a open parenthesis. It's a change, a drastic one. Everything before has been universal. It's been worldwide. Uh, It's been massive things that impact everybody. What it's been seeing is destruction and spreading. And here, God suddenly focuses on one man. The first 11 chapters cover thousands of years of history, rapidly bounding over time. And here it slows down and it just talks about him, his son, and his son's son. And so the second half of Genesis, which is four-fifths of the book, only covers 120 years instead of the thousands that came before it, okay? Not only that, but here God focuses on a nation instead of all nations. It becomes very specific. But even here, it says in verse 3, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the point here is that it's particular for a universal purpose. That's why I said it's an open parenthesis. God is going to do something in particular, and then he's going to close it again and broaden it back up. And this is what I wanted to show you tonight, okay? When you get get to Matthew 28, the parenthesis closes. God's direction changes again. Here he says to Abraham, come to a land that I will show you. And the Bible focuses on the land and his descendants. But in Matthew 28, after all is said and done, the Messiah has come. Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore into all nations, Right before Abraham, we have the table of nations right, with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's no surprise then when we read in the book of Acts in chapter 8, there's the saving of an Ethiopian eunuch. That's a descendant of Canaan, a descendant of Ham in particular. And then right after that in chapter 9, we have the story of the conversion of Saul. He's a Semite. And then in chapter 11, we have the conversion of Cornelius. He's a Roman. He's part of the family of Japheth. Why does he tell those three stories? And why does he put them back to back? Because it's going universal again. It's about all people again. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost, the church gathered in a small group, and then the spirit falls on them that they've been awaiting because Jesus told them to wait for this international mission until they got the power. And how does it manifest? They begin speaking in tongues of many languages. In fact, look at the list Look at the list of languages in Acts chapter 2 and see if it doesn't remind you of what we read in Genesis chapter 10. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is the reversal of the Tower of Babel, okay? And so you could draw the image of this, um, but it's, it's reflecting out in the same way that it focuses in here, okay? So God does choose Israel. And he plans on working Israel and he's going to give something very special to Israel and then he makes them the carrier of the message of what he's done to the ends of the earth. Okay, the plan here is universal. And that's not a New Testament Christian reading of an other religion's ancient stories. It's written right here in the story. Okay, like I said in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, why am I calling you Abraham? Because through you, all the nation of the earth will be blessed. We are all the descendants of Adam and Eve and therefore we are recipients of the promise that God's going to send a savior. We are not all the descendants of Abraham, except spiritually, but this is God on the same track. What we've seen so far in chapters 1 through 11 is the need for God to work, proven beyond a doubt. We can't do it. doesn't matter how much he helps us or leads us or guides us. The problem still remains. Things get worse and worse. We're scattered. We're dispersed. And here we see the first time he takes a step in the direction of action, and he chooses a man and his barren wife. Let's pray. We're always drawn to origin stories. And Father, we we can find these passages to be interesting or intriguing just because they answer big questions that we ask. But I pray that you'd help us through, through this study and through further study to see that there's an intention in the story the Bible is telling and that Genesis is not just one of many unrelated, interconnected documents that make up the Bible, but it's really the foundation that lays the questions that the New Testament answers, that it starts the story that the Old Testament tells that culminates in the Gospels and the coming of Christ, that the message that we proclaim begins here that the gospel begins as God began to work by choosing one man and his barren wife. And I ask that you would just make us better students of the Bible and that we would hear these things. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't build our little empire to, to make a name for ourselves and to choose fame, um, that instead of being like Babel, we would be like Abraham and that we would hear and that we would respond, that we would take your promises and define our life on that instead of our accomplishments.